Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this week's discussion on Isaiah. We're going to pick up in Isaiah chapter 9 today and with a passage that wraps up, concludes some of the passages we've discussed in previous episodes, which which had a lot of doom and gloom in them. The passage we're going to read today is a little more uh, hopeful, a little more positive. And then we're going to spend some time reflecting on our journey through Isaiah so far and, and some of the big issues and challenges that the book has thrown our way. Uh, we're glad that you can join us for this discussion. My name's Cameron. I'm recording from Launceston in Tasmania. And my name's Ken. I'm not sure why I always habitually go second and why those from Launceston go first and second. But there you are. That's how it works. And Luke. Yes, I'm Luke. I habitually go third, uh, as is the <laughs> customary place of Kurumbong. <laughs> And my name's Lachlan, and I'm also in Kurumbong tonight. Yeah, well, uh, let's start reading Isaiah chapter 9. We've, we've, in the last two episodes, looked at Isaiah, or spent actually the last three episodes, we've looked at Isaiah 6, 7, and 8. And the message there is more or less that the king of Judah is a bit concerned, and Isaiah the prophet comes and says, don't be concerned about what you're concerned about. And then he proceeds to explain that actually what's going to happen is a lot worse. And uh, there's all sorts of violent and uh, images of overflowing rivers and razors shaving people's heads and bees, swarms of bees. And uh, it's a bit intense. And the passage we're reading now is actually a continuation. The chapter break comes at an unfortunate time. So this is uh, flowing on from the the passages we've discussed in recent weeks. And I'm going to pick up in Isaiah chapter 9 verses... Uh, I'll start at at the beginning. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Wonderful. Now this passage is quite well known, and it does actually conclude the speech there's an implied pause because when we pick up in uh, in verse 8, in the rest of chapter 9, it starts by saying, the Lord has sent a message against Jacob, it will fall on Israel. I don't know, maybe that doesn't suggest a pause. When I read it first, I thought that perhaps verse 8 onwards was a separate message. I think it is. It's about uh, Israel rather than Judah. And then yeah. chapter 10 goes on about Assyria. Um, you have to refresh my... My geographic knowledge is Gal- where is Galilee? Was it in Israel or Judah this time? Uh, now you embarrass us, Luke, because you just display my ignorance. <laughs> it's 
in the text so cam your translation said uh, something about the gentiles in the esv um in verse one of isaiah 9 it says galilee of the nations but the footnote says or of the gentiles uh so is that implying that it's actually outside the borders of the children of israel uh google has helpfully pointed me towards uh Britannica.com, philosophy and religion scriptures, so presumably this is somewhat reliable. Uh, During the reigns of David and Solomon, Galilee was part of their expanded kingdom. Subsequently, it came under the northern kingdom of Israel. Hmm. Mind you, there's been a lot of toing and froing of of borders and boundaries and cities being taken and cities not being taken. It's possible that at this point, the region of Galilee did belong to the Gentiles. Uh, A couple of things struck me when I was looking at this passage. One of them is uh, a thought that I think we've shared before. Uh, The Judeo-Christian, particularly the the Old Testament, the Jewish writings we have, are some of the first that we have access to that imagine peace as a permanent and desirable state. And uh, as opposed to war being just a necessary thing or a desirable thing, Um, that would always be there. This idea, this vision that starts to emerge, which comes back to us later in Isaiah. In verse 5, it talks about every warrior's boot, everything that's been used in battle will be burned because a child's given to us, and of course this child is is the prince of peace. And and Mm. peace of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end in verse 7. The increase of his government is an interesting phrase. It implies (laughs) a, a country that is growing, expanding. Ah, yeah. Well, uh, this this is an idea which comes up over and over and over again, and I, I see it in the vision that in the book of Daniel that God gives to King Nebuchadnezzar. There is a stone cut without human hands that comes and smashes the statue, and then we are told it grows to fill the whole earth. Um, and the there is even some sense in which the Garden of Eden, way back at the start of Genesis, is is a garden and the blessings given by God upon the creation imply that the garden is to expand and fill the whole earth over, over a process, over a period of time. Um, so there's quite a lot of ways in which the Bible speaks of this growing of the kingdom of God as it encompasses uh, a larger and larger domain. And this this sort of idea is picked up in, in some of the uh, other works we've talked about, actually. Uh, I think at the very end of last quarter, we did an uh, episode that was a bit of a book review, and Luke, you referred to uh, Leaf by Nigel. Mm. Uh, thank you so much for drawing my attention to that. Last time I had to preach, my sermon was just reading the story. And... It's a good little story. It's been ticking over in my mind. It's it's very good. I'd encourage everyone to read it. But one of the ideas of it is that when Nigel reaches the hereafter, he discovers it is a place where there's continual uh, process and continual progress, continual improvement, continual work to be done, challenges to be set, places to go. Things to build. uh, Things to build. So uh, it seems that this idea of, of growth and... Uh, is something that we just really find necessary when we're trying to think of an ideal state. Mm. And and it seems to me that that's quite a significant contrast with some of the stereotypical uh, visions of heaven that we uh, promote. Uh, 
where we'll have nice streets of gold. And, and, and sure, I mean, some, we, we criticise those who say you'll be sitting on a cloud uh, strumming a harp. I mean, how boring would that be? But uh, many of the other visions are of the same order. Um, we'll walk on streets of gold. Well, gold will probably become somewhat passe after a time. Um, the diamond gates won't necessarily shine in all their beauty for eternity uh, any more than the soft comfort of a cloud would uh, be satisfying for an eternity. So I think there, I think this idea of of a, a constant state of improvement is a is a wonderful one indeed. I think we see it uh, to some extent in Eden itself. Um, uh, multiply uh, is one of the yeah. uh, first commands. Uh, so there's Tends an expansion the that's being happy that's happening there. Uh, the work of, of of tending the garden. It, if I jump in here and just say, what is this government that will increase? Um, uh, what is this government, and what's the reign over his kingdom? What's a what's a kingdom, and what's a what's a government? Government is referred to two times. Mm. The greatness of his or the increase of his government, but then also in verse six prior to that. It says, of the child, the son, the government will be on his shoulders, which is a, mm. another really interesting phrase mm. when you consider what the government might be. So what is a kingdom and what is a government? Well, it's, I mean, we're, we're basically skirting around the issue that what's described here is a political institution. In the way it's described, there's governance. Um, it's going to increase. He's going to be a ruler. He's going to be a prince. He's going to create governments were were entities that created peace. You know, the Roman peace was actually what held the empire together. Um, hmm. It was their ability to create a peace and create and sustain a peaceful environment that led the subjects to tolerate Roman rule. So peace is created by governments or rule strong rulers. The Romans offered a lot to the people they conquered. And one of the very significant things they were able to provide was the peace, the, the protection of the of the Roman army. Uh, so, And, of course, this describes this person sitting on David's throne. We are too harsh, I think, on people of the New Testament era, era who expected the Messiah to be a political figure mm. because that's what it says. I'm not satisfied with your answers. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about effects. But what is government? What is the kingdom? I've got an answer in my head, but... <laughs> well, this is the question, isn't it? This is one of the central questions that people struggled with when Christ was there. And uh, I was reading the other day, I haven't I haven't reread it in total, but I picked it up to skim it because I found it when I was unpacking a box, Ben-Hur. And the, the whole book of Ben-Hur is on this question. What, what does the kingdom of heaven look like? What sort of governance is Christ's? governance and and there's a very telling dialogue when christ is being tried before pilate my, my thought is that 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 government is a uh, an institution uh, that is able to uh, enforce its decisions uh, so it's a means uh, it, it's a uh, it's an institution that is able to give effect to its will um, now that institution might be a monarchy uh, and it might be uh, therefore constituted by an individual able to impose their will, um, uh, to give effect to their will. It might be 
uh, a more democratic institution, um, uh, like like a parliament. Um, but a parliament is able to have its will imposed through the various enforcement mechanisms that are in place as part of a government. Um, so anyway, that, well, that was my uh, uh, thought about what a government was. Um, I think that's a really good one, Ken. Uh, it highlights the, the, the aspect of, of power, of ability not just to have an opinion or a, or a, a decision, but, but in fact to be able to act on that and enforce that. And of course, that's been a theme throughout the book of Isaiah so far. And it's very clear in the book of Isaiah that God is the authority who can impose his will and who can enact his decisions. And some of the other people that think they are authorities, the the king of Syria and the, the head of Samaria, some of these other people in the book of Isaiah are being shown up for not actually having that degree of power. So one of the things that has to be acknowledged when we're asking the question, what is government? And what is kingdom here in the verses of chapter nine that we just read is that they, whatever they are, they are directly contrasting with some other governments and kingdoms and powers. So, you know, this one has has an increase of government, but also an increase of peace that will never end. Um, you know, whereas back in chapter seven, verse eight or thereabouts, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. Uh, and then down in verse eight, uh, sorry, chapter eight, verse nine, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Um, strap on your armor and be shattered. And, and take counsel together. Chapter eight, verse 10, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. In other words, you really can't you, you can sit around as if you were a parliament, but you can't, it will come to nothing. You can't actually enforce what you want because God is the real authority here. That, that seems to me to be a consistent kind of picture that's coming out. And there's a contrast being made. Um, the, the kingdom and the government that we just read of in chapter nine is different Locke, that's a really interesting point, and I do want to get back to some of these earlier chapters because it's, it seems to me a little hard. It's certainly, well, it's an obvious contrast. It's not really, I don't think the author's intent is for us to fully reconcile all the good feeling and good intention that's expressed in chapters 9 with the doom and gloom expressed in previous chapters. Uh, they, don't, they don't sort of cancel each other out. Indeed, they return. They return quite swiftly in the, in the balance of chapter nine and ten. Yeah, yeah. Normal services resumed. <laughs> well, yes, but then hopeful passages come also later on. Oh, yes, yes. In, in chapter eleven. Yep. So we're not meant to look at these two passages and say, "Well, let's sort of average them out, and then that will tell us what God wants us to." We, we're expected to grapple with this contrast. But you, you comment about the the earthly kingdoms. I wonder if. One answer to your earlier question, Ken, about what a government government is, is it's an expression of of the collective will of the people, and I'm going to qualify that. In a in a monarchy, obviously, it's just the monarch who makes decisions, and they whatever they says goes. But why does whatever they say go? It's because everyone in that group obeys it, and and th- th- there has to be an agreement on their part to submit to that authority. Um, otherwise the king will be deposed as they often are. But one reason why you might submit to the authority of a king, why you might give that king uh, power, 
is because then he'll treat you favourably, which will in turn make you someone more powerful within that country. In other words, hmm. in other words, you are being submissive because you want to end up in as much of a position similar to the king as possible. In other words, you are saying that being in that position of power is the ideal state that you want to strive for. So in that sense, the collective will of the people, has a, they, there is a common narrative that they have all bought into, that to be in a powerful position is good, and so if I can suck up to the people in power or do what they say, then then I will myself become more powerful. And in that sense, even the most oppressive monarchy that oppress, actively oppresses people is in a way a, an expression of what the people think is important. Can, can, I, can I pick up on two things there? And before we get on to one of the things that I think might be an important part of our discussion, and that is you spoke about the collective will of the people. And I think there's a really interesting discussion to be had about the collective acts that are and uh, consequences that are occurring here in Isaiah. Um, but there, there are a couple of other bits that I want to pick up on in what you have said, um, uh, because I, immediately we start talking about uh, the government being able to be an institution that imposes its will, or that at least is able to get the governed to accept that will, um, uh, reminds me then immediately of the Lord's Prayer. Um, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, so we're to pray for that government of God. Um, God's government clearly exists uh, in heaven. That's where his will is done. And we're to pray for it uh, to be done also uh, here on earth. I think there's another interesting point that arises out of that. And, and you raise this and it's this sort of symbiosis, if you like. I'm not sure whether that's exactly the right word, but uh, between the governed and the governor, um, uh, and, and, and that is that there is an indirect way in which God implements his will. Uh, and it's done through human agencies. It's done through uh, Assyria. Mm. Um, and, it's, and, and we find that even now in our lives. We expect that we will be agents of God's will um, so that uh, we will be instruments uh, of his government. And Cam, one of the things that you said was uh, that... Um, the people, in fact, give the government the power. Um, there's also a sense here in which I think, and then those people who have given their power become in their own way more powerful. Um, and I think there's a real sense in which the one of the purposes of God for human beings uh, is for us to become, to be transformed into people who are able to exercise power well, to be able to exercise power for the good uh, of other people. Uh, and indeed, mm. the very first jobs that we're given in the Garden of Eden uh, is to rule. Uh, and the course of human history uh, is littered with bad rule. Uh, but I think one of the things that God asks of us, uh, and that Daniel and Joseph uh, and Christ uh, are wonderful examples of uh, are those who rule and exercise power uh, for the good. Uh, and that in that way, God's will is done, uh, again, indirectly, if you like, through human agency. Ken, there's, there's heaps of ideas to unpack. Uh, so, it, I mean, it's very obvious that the nation of Israel did not collectively use the power. They were, God took them from a, 
uh, exiled, well, not exiled, but a homeless group of desert wanderers to a fairly powerful political force under the under the reign of David in a reasonably short amount of time. Mm. Uh, so, and it's clear that the Israelites did not exercise that power well. Mm. And and there's a strong warning in this for us, as I hear you 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 saying that that this seems to be the norm, and we ought to be very careful. Uh, the whole book of Isaiah. One of the themes that you pulled out, Luke, in a previous discussion, is that the book of Isaiah is very collective. This nation has done wrong. They're ignoring the widow. They're ignoring the orphan. They're letting people who are who are homeless starve. Uh, I will visit justice upon this nation. This nation is not doing well. This nation, and it's very much groups of people. Our concept of ethics and our concept of justice is very individual. This individual has made a choice that's gone wrong. But but cultures and groups of people make choices that can't be traced to particular individuals. And I'll give you an example. When bees are looking for a new... This is an example that is from bees. It's not it's not humans making choices, but but if it is if it, this can be demonstrated in bees, it must be even more true, I think, in in human cultures. So uh, when bees are hunting for a new nest site, they swarm and the bees all clump up in a ball and they send out a few scouts. And it's a small percentage of the hive is sent out as scouts to look for new sites. So most of the bees don't see any of the new sites at all. The scouts go and they find a site and they they. Uh, have criteria, it's possible for biologists to work out with quite high levels of accuracy what bees are looking for, what direction does it face, is it dry, how high is it off the ground, how big is it, etc, etc. So they're looking for hollow trees and other places. They then return to the swarm and they do a little dance and the little dance uh, tells the neighbouring bees uh, how far away this site is and uh, in what direction. And the other bees are looking and when they see someone doing a dance, they'll go over to check it out. Now, what happens is how long the bee stays doing this dance, how long it, it sits there broadcasting its message, depends on how good that individual bee thinks that site is. So if it's a rubbish site, if it comes back and it doesn't think it's a very good one, it might dance for just a couple of seconds, and which doesn't give many other bees opportunity to see it. So not many other bees, not many other scouts are sent to that prospective perspective, uh, site. But if the bee thinks it's found a really good one, it'll dance for a long time. Now, this means that the bees gradually, as a group, the scouts uh, reduce the number of sites they're visiting. They eventually start focusing on the good ones. And bees make the correct decision more than 95% of the time, even if they're presented with a dozen options uh, with varying levels of, of, uh, of uh, um, utility as a, as a nest site, as a hive site. And bees are very good at making decisions. When the decision is made... No one bee has visited all the sites. Most of the bees have not visited any. The decision is not made by a bee. The decision is made by the interactions between the individuals in the hive. There is, in that sense, a consciousness that exists in the, in the collective bee swarm, which is not there in the individual bees. It's an emergent property. Our cultures are so much more complicated. Our social structures are so much more complicated. But there are so many decisions that we make that can't be traced back to an, an individual. I'll give you one more example. Supposing that pool table, you're playing pool and the pool balls were sentient and they were allowed to choose where they wanted to sit. So the, the, the balls all choose a location and then you take the cue and you hit one of them and it makes eight collisions with other balls and then drops into a pocket. Uh, which choice 
of the ball, of which ball, resulted in the one you struck ending up in the pocket. There must be choices that are made by collective groups. And if there are choices, and we live in a universe that's essentially moral, there are things which are really good and things that are genuinely bad, it must be possible for groups to make decisions. And Cam, just just to be clear, when you talk about these choices being made as a result of the of the individual actions within a group, you're not talking about everybody taking a vote and then going with the majority. You're talking no. about the complex no. interactions between individual group members yeah. that produce an outcome. Yeah. So in the pool table example balls, in the pool table example, the balls have not taken a vote about whether they will direct the one you strike into the pocket. In point of fact, it would be impossible to predict the maths of that particular example. If you if you have a dozen consecutive collisions of pool table balls and you want to predict where it will end up and you fail to take into account the gravitational attraction of an atom on the other side of the universe that is enough to throw your maths out because error accumulates small errors at the start grow into large errors very quickly with subsequent collisions i was going to bring that up as well cam because that's an additional complicating factor is the pool balls could get together and have a vote and decide that the best thing to do is pocket the ball the final ball, um, yeah. and then mess it up completely, fail to to implement their decision. <laughs> yes. Likewise, they could decide we're going to do everything we can <laughs> to stop this ball going in the pocket and mess that up as well. <laughs> so there's a really interesting practical implication of this. I have heard uh, some people say of democratic systems, oh, well, um, we took the vote. The vote went this way. If you If you don't like it, well, that's it. Just shut up and put up with it because we took the vote and the vote, you know, the democratic process has, has spoken. I've heard that in terms of civil politics. I've also heard that in terms of the Adventist church decision-making process of recent years in various contexts. But both times they're wrong because the fundamental idea of democracy is not that if you take a vote, the majority decision is enacted upon and that's that. The whole point of democracy is done right is the freedom to speak and participate as an agent. So it, the vote is just one formal aspect of all of this. But every conversation had by, by someone with another person, raising an idea, bouncing a thought off their friend, um, asking a question of, you know, where can I get slightly better information about this? Every one of those little interactions is in fact part of the collective decision-making process it's it's above and beyond or at least it's part of but complementary yeah. to the formal vote mechanism uh, but it does end up impacting that and and this is the fundamental thing you cannot simply say to someone in a democracy ah well the vote's taken place now so everyone who disagreed just shut up and put up with it yeah so here is is the the subsequent big question of isaiah then given how complex the interactions of groups are and how seemingly out of the the group's control, even not just individual group members, but organized groups, the outcome of their actions and decisions is that. Is it fair to punish them for the consequences of their well, not actually decisions? Well, when you say punish them, you mean punish them individ as individual as a group of individuals? Well, punish the group, the country, the nation... Well, if the if the group or the nation and the country has done something wrong, and it is it is um it is acceptable to punish wrongdoing in other contexts, then surely it's acceptable to punish wrongdoing at the level of groups. The where where it becomes complicated is 
there must have been many individuals within the nation of Judah who were trying their best to do what was right. I bet I'd be very surprised if no one in the nation of Judah was showing charity towards widows and orphans. So, but these people caught the brunt of the punishment as well. So you and and, and they can, when when we talk about uh, sins of a collective group, they can be very real. So when you when you look at, for instance, uh, the Holocaust, and you then go and look at the long record of anti-Semitism across Europe, including in England, including everywhere, and centuries of people, uh, maybe their their capacity for choice is limited, but uh, even in their limited way, choosing to perpetuate uh, ill feeling towards minority groups. Uh, I've got a friend who would dearly love to be here and contradict everything that I'm saying because he, he has uh, very different views to what I have on free will. And and it could be that the individuals have less free will than they think, that, that our culture and our upbringing predetermines to some extent what we'll choose. But even if they only had a quarter of a fraction of a millionth of a percent of free will, that's enough. And that free will is exercised over many centuries to build cultural attitude in a way. No, they're not. The cho- free choices are not made to build cultural attitudes, but but the, the choices that are made end up building cultural attitudes of deep anti-Semitism. And then you end up with a collective wrong, perpetuated and and uh, facilitated and allowed and ignored at times. And, and, you know, made the Holocaust happens and it's awful. Uh, it would be fair to say that's something that deserves punishment, if anything does. But we know that there were individuals within Germany who... who spoke truth to power and and suffered for it and and really tried to stand up for the Jews. So this is the question that we've been struggling with. I think it's formed in my mind over the last week, the sort of challenge we've had. The challenge we've had is that God is spending a lot of time in Isaiah punishing groups, and we don't feel very comfortable with it because we don't think that all the individuals in that group warranted punishment. So so what do we do? It creates significant challenges uh, for us when we look at our current society, our Western culture, uh, and the collective decisions that we have made, perhaps the combination of individual choices that we make, uh, even if we're not voting a particular way, um, uh, we look it at... It could be, Ken, that our conversations, the conversations people have at the local pub and at the footy game and, and in the church parking lot, have more influence over the the big scale picture the movement of ideas within a community those small incidental choices and conversations and whether to participate in gossip about the latest lgbt um co-worker we've got or or to look our nose down on some recent immigrant or or to overlook the suffering of some, someone in a in a total informal context mm. or the the gossip we share inadvertently. It could be that those small things have a bigger impact on where our society is moving than any formal vote. And I mean, the, the, the sort of areas where what you say would be true, I think, uh, is distribution of resources, um, uh, relying on market forces, um, uh, th- those who don't dispute it, climate change. Um, uh uh, and and it brings to mind another issue that that causes significant angst in our society, and that is, um, uh, what we do with in our indigenous people for the mm. wrongs that were committed, 
not by any individual now alive. Um, although no doubt there are still wrongs mm. committed by individuals uh, against Indigenous people, but for you know the past wrongs. So you're exactly right. And uh, t- one little more or less trivial example of just how complex some of this can be. Years ago, I sat down to try and do a bit of market research to say, okay, I am a consumer in a in an economy of fuel um how can i use my consumer power my my choice which is kind of like a a vote with my purchase um to to signal what kind of direction i want fuel supply to go so i did a bunch of reading and trying to work out what petrol station could i buy fuel from and be the best option in a sort of social sustainability um uh, kind of responsible socially responsible sort of attitude well that's really difficult you've rapidly reached the answer that the best thing you do is never buy fuel but then of course okay so you buy a bicycle and say i'm not buying any fuel but most of the groceries that you buy at the shop have been transported with the purchase of fuel if you truly wanted to bypass the question of how can i more ethically source fuel then you have to essentially unplug with almost complete entirety from society and and the the, the sort of function of things uh, in in our in our world right you you can't avoid this d- decision and yet you can't make mm. a good decision that's essentially yeah. where i the the conclusion that i reached it's it's a very discouraging and demoralizing exercise i wonder if that's how many people in Judah felt around the time of Isaiah when they were trying to do as God commanded and care for the widows and the orphans and the foreigner and the social systems and structures and power structures in place made it very hard, if not impossible, to do that as a member of that society. And they felt exactly what you just described. Mm. It, it, It is sobering from this perspective. We are prepared to allow a combination of choices by an individual to determine their moral responsibility and the consequences that face them uh, as a matter of justice and fairness. Um, most of the, uh, uh, most of the uh, um, defendants who appear before me um, uh, are there because of not any one individual choice, although that it may have been the the end choice um, of a series of choices that led them there. Um, uh, when I choose, when, when I put on seven kilos over Christmas, um, it's not because I chose to put on seven kilograms, it's because I made many, many individual choices about what I was going to put in my mouth, and I now wear the consequences of that. Um, and indeed, my recollection of uh, uh, neuroscience from my undergraduate days is that uh, our neurons can be primed uh, to respond so that there, there can be there's, there's a particular um, action potential uh, that has to be reached uh, before the neuron will fire but interactions with other neurons can increase the level of potential to the point where it only takes a little bit of an interaction with the last neuron to fire it over that, that the line and to get it to act to, to activate, and, and it seems to me that everywhere individually we're faced with uh, a combination of choices over time uh, that lead to a particular outcome, moral uh, responsibility in the individual, 
why ought it be any less fair for a combination of choices at a particular point in time of many individuals uh, to produce uh, a, a moral responsibility uh, on that collective? And when we're not very... We're not very reluctant. I'm, I'm thinking, Ken, as you talk about the racist abuse that was targeted at uh, uh, Indigenous AFL players mm. a year or two ago. And there were instances when individual fans had their club membership revoked, which I think I think is a good thing. And that's obviously the AFL trying to make a stand. Those individuals don't act in a, in a vacuum, uh, but we only ever really punish individuals, don't we? Like, it would be seen as really wrong if a club was to say... Um, out of protest, we will not play next week, mm. and we'll punish all our fans mm-hmm. because they there is this element within the group, maybe not within all individuals, but there is this collective thing uh, that's there. I want to throw an idea out, and and I can see that we're we're running what? short on time, uh, so I'll make this idea. Shocked. I'll make this idea short. Um, but it it potentially offers a little bit of a of a way forward on this and i'm not trying to minimize the 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 challenge presented by this this sort of idea these concepts to us especially in our hyper individualistic society i think one of the challenges we need to accept is uh, some things in the eyes of god are less individualized than than we sometimes assume but what if we just what if we just take a step back we've talked a lot about punishing the collective and, and Isaiah talking about punishments that will come on, on nations and of, on groups of people. Um, but perhaps implicit in that, in that wording is an idea that this punishment is retribution. It's somehow repaying or payment for something that's gone wrong. What if the punishments being described are restorative or educational? And um, we've already talked last season, I think we had an episode on... Um, restorative justice as a as an actual formal and codified uh, practice that is impacting lots of um, even even the courts and, the, and our civil justice system but the lesson this week does cover more than just Isaiah 9 as it has to because Isaiah's got a lot more chapters than we can get through in 13 weeks if we just do one chapter a week so jumping forward to Isaiah 10 and Isaiah 11 in the middle of Isaiah 10, at around about verse 20, uh, there's a heading in my Bible called the remnant of Israel will return. And suddenly we jump into a bunch of keywords that really, really um, we should have our ears open for. So Isaiah 10 verse 20, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. Verse 21, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob. Um, verse 27, and in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke. And then we come over to mm-hmm. verse to chapter. Um, then we come over to chapter eleven, um, and there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And down in verse ten of chapter eleven, in that day, the root of Jesse. So we've got a lot of things happening here in that day. So there's a heavy sense of anticipation, and there's this remnant shall return. And of course, back in Isaiah 7, this theme was heavily prefigured because Isaiah has a son 
that, and, uh, that he takes with him to meet King Ahaz. The son was called Shear Jashab, the name meaning a remnant shall return. So this is a thing which has been sitting out there prominently in our attention right from the start of these proclamations of judgment against the nations. They were, they were before the judgments even started, there was a promise of a remnant returning. And by the time you get to chapter 12 of Isaiah, which is very short, um, it, it all comes together. In that day, you will say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. And I wonder if that idea we played with a week or two ago about sometimes it's it, it may be that there is a set of events, a set of outcomes, which which while seemingly imperfect are nevertheless the best possible history, the best possible outcome. I wonder if that could be what's happening here, there are, there are things that Isaiah has to say about what's going to come to certain groups of people, and they sound pretty terrible. But the outcome, right from the very start, is hinting that they could be a process of salvation, of restoration, of education. Maybe it's, maybe it's God's way of trying to with maximum effectiveness, interact with this collective consciousness and, and move it to a slightly different place. And you can't do that by just taking one individual king and changing his mind or or one individual priest and, and getting him to preach better or something. You, you want to teach the collective, so you actually have to engage the entire collective group. I, I'm not completely satisfied by this idea. There's ragged edges on this idea, but there's some kernel in there that I find is quite interesting. Mm. I, I wonder whether what you're talking about, if we were talking in market terms, is a collective corrective um, or, or, or a recalibration <laughs> yeah. um, of some sort. It is frightening in some ways, Ken, to think of ourselves as one of those neurons you described in our brain, mm. as as something that is actually part of something bigger uh and uh what that might mean if you were if i was perhaps more relevantly to diet more strictly that would involve lessening the influence of certain neurons in my brain which which as individual neurons have done nothing wrong <laughs> they've they've just done what neurons do um so that that's a worrying idea what i do find really interesting here um uh, is the way that the outcome is declared in Isaiah 12, um, you know, verses, verse 4, for example. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. What deeds? Well, in Isaiah so far, we've read of a lot of deeds that God is going to do or has done. Um, some of those things are the things that we are grappling with as, as sounding like pretty negative deeds. But the, the big picture that is seen in that day is, is to proclaim that God's name is exalted. Um, I find it interesting that the, some of the cultural aspects you're reflecting on, and this is, this is by necessity, are, are reflecting on things over which we have some degree of the benefit of hindsight, or at least oversight, or some sight that's 
that's better than the 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 sight of the people who lived through those eras and activities and i think the caution that i take away from it very very genuinely is what aspects of my life and culture today do i absolutely take for granted but might horrify my great grandchildren what is it because i can't see it that's the way these things always work I can't see it because they I, they are part of the culture in which I'm embedded, and I think of them as normal. To, there's you actually know. another way you can do that as well. Like you should, we should probably all do both. Certainly, ask what your great grandchildren would be horrified. You can also consider whether or not you do anything that would have horrified your great grandparents, because it yeah. does go the other way as well. Yeah, and it seems like the, when you said this is something of which we're not aware. I'm sure that God has to extend grace to us every day for doing things that we are not fully yet have. A, we don't have a, a big enough, a, an expansive enough sense of right and wrong to be able to distinguish that it's wrong. I'm sure God is gracious to us all the time. I'm sure there are times, though, when we don't want to know. And mm. that seems to me what God is, is really pouncing on the Israelites for. His suggestion is this is, this is not something... Yeah that you should have been surprised because I've actually tried to tell this to you quite often. Can I, can I raise two things that might uh, also be, or might not be suitable for a conclusion to our discussion? Um, well, uh, can it, it will be the conclusion of the discussion because <laughs> we're definitely out of time. Well, so. let, let's, let's, let's hope they're suitable. Um, <laughs> uh, the, first of, the, the first of those is what you have talked about is the view of your grandchildren or indeed your, van- your grandparents and your inability to see it. And that brings me back to Isaiah 6, which caused us so much tr- trouble before. We have eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. And here is a really, really interesting thing, given that we're moving forward in Isaiah up to chapter 11. And we come to verse 3 and we see uh, that uh, we talk about this shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. And it seems to me that one of the challenges for us is whatever our limit, the limitations of our sight, our knowledge and our understanding, the challenge that we are left with is to make our decisions in a way that, if it be possible, the world will, on the whole, be a better place. Mm. And, and we do not know how much power those small choices might have. No. Uh, what that one mm. little piece of the absence of gossip might be. Um, mm. Yes, cho- choices not to do something as often mm. as choices to mm. do something. Mm. Yeah. I that's that's very tangibly Ken what I take from Jesus when he challenges us to be agents of his kingdom you know what does that mean I think it's it's the awareness that every small thing uh, that that we're engaged with and participating in is is part of this this steering of the collective conscious it's part of moving the world closer to God's will being done as it is in heaven we are out of time and um, we're going to have to wrap it up. I, I guess one of our... Well, this, I'm going to throw it again to our listeners to provide us with a concluding thought. Uh, my, my concluding prayer 
to our discussion would be that that we would embrace and ask God always to challenge us uh, towards that bigger understanding and to live up to the truth we already know, which is you know a central idea of Isaiah. Too. It's not just that they don't yet see things that he hopes them to learn in the future. They're, they're not acting on the knowledge they have. Uh, and when when God really ch- and he may that may require a firm hand, uh, but let us welcome that because it genuinely does lead to good. Uh, and that's a that's quite a confronting thought. Right, we, we're going to have to leave it there. So uh, send your thoughts to us, please, at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Uh, we're very interested to read them and uh, we'll incorporate them into our discussion as we go forward. There's so many other ideas. I'm sure there's many that we've missed. I'm sure there's many others that we've dealt with inadequately. And it's quite possible that we're completely on the wrong track and badly in need of correction ourselves. So don't hesitate to send your thoughts in and please join us next week as we continue uh, reading through the book of Isaiah. Amen.